now we are going to get into the text. We are going to be in Mark chapter 12 as we've been here for a really long time. Um, we are getting so close to um, like the pinnacle of Jesus's life. Um, and his death and his resurrection. And we're thrilled to, to get there in the month of January. Um, but we are just trucking our way through the book of Mark. Um, so here we are, Mark chapter 12. We haven't been here for a few weeks just due to the holidays and things like that. But where Jesus is in this story is Jesus is still um, in the temple. He's teaching. He's answering questions. He's making observation. Um, and so we're going to, I'm just going to give you a really brief re recap of where we've been the last few few weeks um, since we've been gone. So the portion that we're walking through in chapter 12 and chapter 11, um, these are the events that are leading up to Jesus's uh, crucifixion and his burial and, and his resurrection. And so Jesus has made his way into Jerusalem on Sunday. So I want you to think of like a, a, a weekly calendar. So Jesus rides into Jerusalem on Sunday. He was greeted very warmly by the crowds. The Jews were shouting Hosanna. They were saying like praise be to Jesus. They were excited because the Messiah that they've been waiting for for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years had finally come to relieve the, the oppression and the oppression of sin over them. And so they were really, really excited. Um, so the timeline of the passage that we're reading today is Wednesday. And uh, just looking forward Friday, not like this Friday, but in the timeline of the week and of the, the text, Jesus will be crucified on Friday. And so different groups of Jewish political and religious leaders were questioning Jesus and they were hoping that he would respond in such a way that they could be like, gotcha, and um, that the crowds would be upset at them and they would have a reason to arrest him throw him in prison, and ultimately execute him. And the reason that they weren't very successful in this yet, and the reason that they were getting frustrated was because Jesus was calling them out for their hypocrisy, um, for their exclusivity, and their narrow-mindedness. And so this is where we pick up in our text today. So we're going to read Mark chapter 12, verses 35 through 44. And if you are able, would you mind standing with me as we read the passage? And the reason we stand is we believe that God's word is authoritative, it's inerrant, it, it has authority, it is God-breathed, and we just want to give honor to the words that God has said. And so we're going to read Mark chapter 12, 35 through 44. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said, well, we'll explain this and we'll talk through it. So the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And this was a quote from Psalm 110. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? The large crowd listened to him with delight. Verse 38, as he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats uh, in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. Verse 41, Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put 
and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins. Um, a lot of theologians now believe that this was about, uh, to our dollar would be the equivalent of a dollar, about a dollar twenty-five, and this says that this is literally all she had to her name, is about a dollar twenty-five, our money. Worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. You may be seated. So before we jump into verses 38 through 44, that, those last two sections that made a little bit more sense, we're going to just briefly talk about the first two verses, 35, or I guess three, 35, 36, and 37. Um, it's a fairly simple explanation um, to this passage. Um, the passage being quoted is Psalm chapter 110, verse 1. And kind of what Jesus is, is asking these, these religious leaders that he's, t- he's talking to by quoting Psalm 110. He's almost asking the question, how is it that the Messiah is the son of David? How is this possible? David was the second king over the nation of Israel. He reigned from about 1000 BC to about 962 BC. So it was prophesied that the Messiah, the one who would come to save the nation from oppression and from sin once and for all, would come from this line of King David. Uh, So how could Jesus, who the Bible says is God in the flesh, how could Jesus be the descendant or the son of David? David was just a human. So how is this even, how is this even possible? So these leaders, um, the leaders that Jesus is talking to, they prided themselves in knowing like everything about God. They, they, pri- they prided themselves in knowing everything about the coming Messiah, but they were missing a key important. And it was this, they failed to recognize Jesus as God because the Messiah they hoped for was not the Messiah they got. So the Messiah that they were hoping for, they would rescue them from the oppressive Roman rule. They were hoping for a Messiah um, that that would view the religious leaders as superior to everyone else and give them a special place of honor here on earth, but also in heaven. And that's not what Jesus came to do. Jesus came, what was very clear in his ministry on earth, what he came to do. He came to set the captives free. And it was frustrating these people. And what he meant was, was that he was going to free them from, from captivity, not, not like this physical captivity from the Romans, but it was the spiritual and then the power and the bondage of sin. But what they interpreted that was the Roman rule. And so the question Jesus asks in 35 through 37 reveals how little these religious leaders knew about him. They weren't accepting Jesus as as God, as the Son of God, or as the Messiah. And it's kind of funny how verse 37 tells us that the crowd had, had, was like really pleased and was delighted with what Jesus was talking about. I can't help but think that they were like really excited that Jesus was kind of sticking it to them. You know, maybe Jesus was saying the things that they always wanted to say. Maybe they were, they see a guy going up against these religious leaders that no one else would go up against. And so maybe they were just like, yes, like they were just excited about that. I don't know. That's just kind of what I think. Um, So in this next section, Jesus will show two ways 
that the religious leaders were missing the point of how to rightly worship God. So let's go back to verses 38 through 40. Let's read those again, and then we'll talk through them. As he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. And more specifically, these were called the scribes. They were the teachers of the law. They liked to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. So if we were to kind of just summarize what... Jesus is saying right here, we could kind of say this, the scribes thought they were more important than everyone else. So if we're just kind of read this, kind of just summarize this, we can see that the scribes basically just thought that they were the most important people in the room. And um, if you spent any time in church, you've heard uh, kind of really any sermon, you've probably heard just the terms like the Pharisees or the religious leaders and really what that is or what the, the connotation that we have is always really negative. We like to group all religious leaders of this time period and say that they're all, as I would say, scumbags. Um, but the truth is, this isn't correct. Um, that would be like grouping all pastors together and saying all they want is money and power simply because that's what some pastors want. So we need to put the, the religious leaders into perspective. Charles Mole said this, There is no evidence that all the theologians in Jesus' day were frauds, using their position merely as a cloak for cruelty and greed. But the most influential of them seem to have conceived a bitter hatred of Jesus. And one can only guess that this idea was because they were indeed using their powers selfishly and irresponsibly and detested his exposure of their real motives. So this has to be in our minds when we're reading about the religious leaders and the Pharisees in these texts. We can't just lump every single one in and say that they're all terrible and they're all jerks because it's, it's not true. So with that being said, Jesus instructs the crowds to watch out for the teachers of the law. So what Jesus is kind of talking about is watch out for the teachers of the law that are teaching false doctrine. Um, the same instruction is given elsewhere in the New Testament. Um, 1 Timothy chapter 1 and chapter 6, as well as 2 Timothy chapter 2 and chapter 4, Paul instructs the pastor of this church in Ephesus, his name is Timothy, crazy, um, to not allow people to teach false doctrine because they, it would lead to people's faith being destroyed. And specifically in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, Paul instructs Timothy to teach the word and encourage, correct, and rebuke with great patience and careful instruction. So all of this to say, there were religious leaders who taught the law correctly and they represented God in a way that honored him. And there are pastors equally that, that teach the Bible and teach the word of God correctly and represent God in a way that honors him. But there is also a reverse to both of those statements. 
The title of pastor does not automatically mean they teach correct doctrine. A person needs to take notes, read their Bibles, and ask questions. This is part, and I try to be the person who teaches uh, correct doctrine. Doctrine. Our church strives very, very strongly to do that as well. And so, but we also encourage people to take notes, read the Bible for yourself, and ask questions if things don't make sense. So let's go back to the corrupt religious leaders. So how does their life compare to the teachings of Jesus? So let's look how they were conducting their lives. They walk around in flowing robes and greeted with respect uh, in the marketplace. They have the most important seats in the synagogues, at the places of honor, at the banquets. So these scribes would, they would wear these really long white robes that would almost like touch the ground. And, um, and the, the huge difference was the common Jewish person did not wear these sorts of things. They wore more neutral colored clothes. And they weren't, their clothes weren't quite as nice as theirs either. So this meant that the scribes and the other religious leaders were easy to spot and were easy to recognize when they were out and about. They thought extremely highly of themselves. I don't know if you know anybody like that. You know, they just carry themselves in such a way. It's like, you think you are all that, don't you? Yeah, I think we can all think of the person. Don't look at them. Don't text them. No, just think of them in your head. Um, but they would walk around. These scribes would walk around. They they would think that they are the most important people in the room um, and, and in the city. And get this, they would require people to call them like rabbi, teacher, and master. And they thought that they were almost as important as God. They, all, they saw themselves as, as people who needed to be respected as if they were God. Because they were the ones who were teaching, interpreting, and learning the words of the scripture. But like the text communicates, in the places of worship and in feasts, they had this privilege of royalty. And it probably felt really good. You know, it always feels really good to get this place of, of like special um, privilege, right? Like when we go to a, like a party or a hangout and we know the people that are hosting the get-together, we're like, you feel like you're in the inn. You feel like you're in the in crowd, that you're somebody. This is kind of what those people were doing as well. But interestingly enough, Jewish law stated that the teachers of the Torah, the teachers of the Hebrew scriptures, were not allowed to take payment for their service. They actually said it was unethical for them to take money. So how did they have this, this place of influence? How did they have this place of financial power? The answer is very simple. Donations. They were able to receive donations and gifts from people for their services. And as you can imagine, this left a lot of room for manipulation, the abuse of power, and this was extremely common. I mean, we look at it, we looked at it in verse 40. It says they devour widows' houses. They would guilt people into giving money to them and then in return, God would give them a financial blessing and that's what they would do. They would prey on widows, um, the desperation of widows to convince them be, that because of their financial gift, they would receive a financial blessing from God. Widows were considered 
vulnerable members of society because husbands in this time period, they were like the sole breadwinners. They were the ones who they worked outside of the home. They earned all of the money. And then if the husband died and then the son would then take that place and he would be the sole provider. But then if the family didn't have a son, then this widow is just kind of out of luck. She's just left to fend for herself, which left her vulnerable for people to take advantage of her. And you could see how this is a recipe for disaster and abuse. But God has a special and a tender place for the widows. Psalm 68, verse 5, that God is a father to the fatherless. A defender of widows is God in his holy dwelling. Isaiah 10, 1 through 2, Woe to those who make unjust laws, to those who, who issue oppressive decrees, to deprive the poor of their rights and withhold justice from the oppressed of my people, making widows their prey and robbing the fatherless. There's a number of passages in Deuteronomy that lay out how to care for orphans and foreigners and widows and to provide for their needs. And the New Testament also speaks of the importance of widows. James 1, 27, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after the orphans and the widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So what we can see is that these religious leaders, the scribes were doing exactly what was opposite of God's heart for people. And the really sad part was they were doing all of this in the name of God. They were doing all of this in the name of God and abusing people and taking advantage of people. And you can kind of see why Jesus brought up this issue. They had a skewed view of what blessing looked like and only attributed financial growth as blessing, but what did Jesus teach? So we can talk about what the what the scribes were doing, but what did Jesus teach? Jesus lays out a pretty clear picture of, of who will find blessing. And he defines blessing kind of as like joy and happiness and contentment through God. If we look to Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 10, it's called the Beatitudes. It's the, the start of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said this: He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Excuse me. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This seems pretty polar opposite of how the teachers of the law were living. So let's break these, these down. What does this mean? Like what does, what does the word blessed mean? It just, like I said, means to be happy or joyful and content in the Lord. So verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does this mean? Being poor in spirit refers to a person recognizing their sin and their desperate need for God to forgive them. The kingdom of heaven refers to their salvation through their repentance of sin and faith in Jesus. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Mourning in this context means to experience grief over your sin. The Spirit comforts those who are honest about their own sin and humble enough to ask for forgiveness and healing. 
Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Verse 5, meekness refers to mildness, gentleness of spirit, or humility. Meekness is humility towards God and towards others. It's having the right or the power to do something, but refraining for the benefit of someone else. Jesus being the ultimate example of this. Philippians 2. Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So being in very nature of God, Jesus had the right to do whatever he wanted, But for our sake, he submitted to death on a cross. This is the ultimate display of meekness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness is an active longing to be in right relationship with God. And this filling only comes through God's gift of grace to those who seek it. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Being merciful is displaying forgiveness and compassion. We find joy and happiness when when we display the same mercy God displays for us. To withhold our due punishment. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. The word pure referring to clean, blameless, free from guilt. Joyful is the person whose heart is surrendered to the work of Jesus' sanctifying power. Psalm 51, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. The peacemakers are the ones who bring reconciliation to broken relationships. Peacemakers are the ones who who give of themselves for others to know God. And finally, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those who suffer because of their faith in Jesus can be joyful because they know that their eternal reward is eternity with God. Friends, can you spot the difference? Can you spot the difference between the way that the scribes operated and the way that Jesus defined the kingdom of God? It is drastically different. They're on polar opposite ends of the spectrum. And because we're broken, because we're sinful in need of a Savior, we have to surrender our sin and selfishness daily in order to live with righteous and Christ-like motivation. With, with a motivation that, that desires to help people and people in need, not just profit off of them. James 1 says that, that this faith is a religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless. And friends, the invitation is, is simple. To repent of our sin and allow the Holy Spirit to transform us from the inside out. Because we're unable to save ourselves and live a holy and righteous life. But this is the beauty of what Jesus did. This is the beauty of Friday. 
and the church calendar calls it Good Friday. It's the beauty of what Jesus did on the cross. He took the weight and the payment of your sin and my sin upon his shoulders. And he offers us salvation as a free gift. No prerequisite, no cleanup before, as you are, and Jesus makes you new. So the pure and the faultless faith is not just in our motivation for the way that we carry ourselves and treat others, but it's also in our motivation of how or why we give our money and why we are generous. Let's read verse 41 through 44, and then I'm going to conclude here in just a moment. Uh, Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Can we just pause and just say how awkward this would be? Like he's just being a savage and just like revealing all of this hypocrisy and he's revealing all of these ill intentions of these different people and then he just like sits and watch, watches people give money. Like talk about uncomfortable. I would be uncomfortable, but <clears throat> whatever. I would be on his side maybe, hopefully, so maybe it would feel less uncomfortable. But anyways, many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. So if we were to summarize this, we could say this, the motivation behind your generosity determines the value of the gift more than the amount. The motivation, the heart behind why you are giving and this goes against everything that we naturally think. Because we determine the value of something based on its dollar amount. If a phone costs more money, say my phone costs 100 bucks, and you know Reagan's phone costs 200 bucks, we can determine that Reagan's phone is better than mine. Why? Because it's more expensive, unless it's Apple, because then they overcharge for a lot of things. But it's neither here nor there. Um, <clears throat> it's all right. I have Apple products, but I have a Google phone. Anyways, but what we equate more money to is more importance. Like, yeah, the parts are better. Um, when this car costs more, typically we think, like, oh, like, it must be a better car. It must be a, a higher quality car. When we pay more money for a gun, Hunter, it's like, it's got to be better, right? See, okay, whatever. Don't break my analogy down, okay? Whatever. I'm not going to ask you a question anymore. <laughs> when, we think, <laughs> when we think of a generous person, what's the first thing that comes to our head? An amount. We think about, oh my gosh, like this person is always, however you know the amount maybe that a person is giving, like we automatically equate generosity to a dollar amount. Whether that's donating to a charity or a nonprofit or a church, we, dip, we typically don't define the worth of a financial gift by the motivation behind it. But our text seems to say otherwise. It seems as if Jesus is communicating to his disciples and to us today that no matter the amount, the motivation behind your generosity shouldn't be to make a scene. It's to give back to God what is already God's. And this is not the only time and place that Jesus speaks about the way you give to the needy and how you live generously. 
in the, in the blessed are those who, the, the, the Beatitudes, a little bit later, Jesus is, tells his disciples how to live generously. Chapter 6, verses 2 through 4, he says, So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by others. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now, I need to say this. Caveat, Jesus is not being literal, okay? This is, I believe in like English, it's called like hyperbole. Is that correct? Like he's giving like the, an exaggerated example to illustrate a point. This is, he's explaining how a believer should be generous. You should be able to see that the corrupt religious leaders were practicing generosity in a way that is contrary to Jesus' teaching. So it's, it's not saying like literally, it's like impossible for it's like, oh, I'm going to give with my right hand. My left hand doesn't know what's happening. You know, it's like, it's not possible. And he's not talking about literally. But what he's saying is, is when you give generously in secret, and Matthew 6 would say that you are storing up treasures in heaven. All right, I'm going to end here. Do Jesus' words, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, mean we should never let others know about our giving? This is a legit question. I've asked this question a bunch of times. Now, this is not necessarily. The focus is on the motive of our giving. Our generosity is to be motivated by our love for God and our focus on eternity rather than the temporary praises of people. So I want to leave you with this, this main thought, the big idea. The way you treat others and the way you give your money greatly reflects your view of God. So we're going to flush this out further. Like I said in the very beginning, we're going to go into our small groups. We're going to do something a little bit different. Um, in a survey a couple months ago uh, that you guys did, there was a question on there. Would you guys want to do mixed small groups? And it was about 85% of you said yes. And so this is our attempt at this. Um, so I want to give just a prerequisite. Um, I realize that this is a new thing, and I know sometimes when we do new things, it can be awkward. Can we just admit it right now? Okay, there's going to be awkward moments. There is going to be awkward pauses. You're going to look at the person across the circle from you and you're going to be like, I don't want to say anything because this person's different than what I see in my small group every single week. And this person's a girl and I like her and this, that, and the other. But can we just, can we just say that it's going to be awkward? It might be a little bit uncomfortable, but can I say this? Can you hear me? Yeah. Hear me out. Thank you, Katie. Okay, so hear me out. The insight that you have is so important. Whether this is in a mixed small group or not, your input is valuable and it is needed in this family. It is needed for the growth of, of not just you as an individual, but us as a church community. So your input is valuable, okay? I just want you to know that there might be some awkward moments. Let's just embrace it. It'll be totally fine. And once we do this more often, it will get less and less weird. Okay? Okay, this is what we're going to do. We are going to break off into middle school on this side of the room, high school on this side of the room. And what we are going to attempt to do, hear me out, like 10 seconds. What we're going to attempt to do is break off into 6th, 7th, and 8th, boys and girls in 6th, 7th, and 8th. And then boys and girls, uh, freshman, sophomore, junior, senior. Okay? Can we attempt to do that? All right. Let's go.